So I give God thanks and praise that our pastor returns tomorrow. Woohoo! Okay, I'm gonna say that one more time. And I'm gonna need you to, you know, scream out like, you know, you happy about it. I give God thanks and praise that our pastor returns tomorrow. It is a joy, and she has been missed <clears throat> tremendously. So last week, we um, talked about light. For those of you who may not have been there, we talked about using our light um, in the darkness of this world, in these times that are so incredibly heavy. And because it has been a privilege to serve you this summer, I want to extend that message a bit today as we talk about the radical character and nature of Christ. That I believe that we have the power through God and through Christ to do more than what we often believe we do. Now don't get me wrong, I do think that there is much of our life in this world that we spend trying to control what we cannot, but in doing so we often put off what we can control. And I think our capacity to work together is often underestimated. And so we're going to look at the person of Jesus, the one in whom we say we believe and seek to follow. And let's just spend a little time with this text. Believe it or not, it's one of my favorite texts. It is very lengthy, and I apologize that it's longer than even most, because I usually read long passages of scripture. But if you are new in this space, I don't want you to be afraid and think that this is an indication of how long this sermon will be. I like to give that qualifier for anybody who's new in this space. Mark 4 verse 35 through Mark 5, verse 20. It reads as follows. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them on the boat, just as he was, other boats were with him. A great gale arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. And they came to the other side of the lake to the country of Gerasenes. And when they had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what 
is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And there on the hillside, a great herd of swine were feeding, was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned in the lake. And the swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. And then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon sitting there clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon and to the swine reported it. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God, give to us what we need in this moment. Bring us fully present into this moment that we may hear and receive, that we may be encouraged and inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my mentors once told, taught me that being radical is just as much about a person's character as it is about their capacity or ability to affect moral or just change in a space. I'd asked him, the reason we were having this conversation is because I'd asked him how he was able to create so much progressive change in the place where we were serving at the time. And he said this to me, he says, you know, Donna, he says, you can get just about anything done you wanna get done if you don't need the credit for it. He says that he would spend about 50% of his time convincing people in power that his ideas were theirs. And he would spend the other 50% of the time making those things come true. He says, now, at the end, yes, the leaders of the space would get credit for the um, progressive innovation that he worked so hard to get. He says, but somehow the people who were impacted the most, the people on the ground, always seemed to know when his hand was in something. Being radical is more than just a season, not only for us as people, but it is true for Jesus. It's inherent. In fact, one of the definitions of um, radical is actually inherent something that is inherent or um, inherently existing in a person, but it also can mean the root or the origin of something. And is that not how we understand Jesus? Was not Jesus one who inherently, in the way that he interacted with people, would always go right to the root, right to the origin of something? He wouldn't waste people's time. It was very fundamental in the way that he operated. Well, I believe that sometimes Jesus did this in scripture in a very um, 
overt way, but then there are other times when Jesus did this in a more subtle way, like in our passage today. Jesus had been speaking in parables and sharing with crowds of people, and the crowds were pressing upon him to stay. They wanted to to spend more time with him. They wanted him to do more healing, and right at the moment when they're pressing upon him and they're growing in number, he says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. And so they get in a boat and they cross over the sea. And while they are crossing over, Jesus lays down to go to sleep and a storm rises. Now, the sea that they were on is um, enclosed by two mountain ranges. And so when a storm comes up, it feels like you can get stuck kind of in this vortex of weather. And so what we have is the situation where the storm has arisen and they are being swamped. Waves, some people say, could have reached up to 10 feet tall. For those of you who are wondering, like basketball goal level tall, they aren't on this huge great ship like we had before. They are on a ship big enough for all of them, but they're making their way across the sea and Jesus is asleep. This is a scary moment. And so what do they do? We don't have anything else we can do. These are experienced fishermen. They know the danger that they're in. They go to Jesus and they shake him. Look, Jesus, do you not care we about to die? And he, you know, calmly gets up and he's like, why are you afraid? I don't know, Jesus, 10 foot waves. What you think? <laughs> now, to be fair, the disciples had not yet seen Jesus interact with nature. So there was no pre-knowledge outside of the, the wedding where he turned water to wine that Jesus could actually control nature. And so Jesus gets up and he speaks as the creator to the wind and the waves, and they calm, peace, be still. And the disciples' reaction is exactly what it should be, what mine would be. They are awestruck, and they ask the question, what sort of man is this that the winds and the waves obey him? They get to the other side, to Gerasenes, a city that we know very little about, small town, and just as Jesus is stepping out of the boat, he can't really even get out of the boat. He sees a semblance of his image running towards him. This man, I imagine, has hair matted and dirty, his body naked and thin from not eating, his skin a collage of bruises and colors of dried and fresh blood from his own self-mutilization. Jesus speaks, come out of the man unclean spirit. The man continues to run. He stumbles and falls before Jesus. How funny that the evil in this man, the demons in this man, recognize Jesus when his disciples just a few moments before were asking, what sort of man is this? They say, please, we implore you, don't torment us, Jesus. And he says, what is your name? He said, we are legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was um, a group of, of soldiers that comprised of maybe 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. We are legion, we are many. Please send us into the swine. The swine were grazing on the side of the hill near the water. About 2,000, and Jesus grants their request. The demons leave this man entering the swine and the self-hate and viciousness 
that was once consumed by this man now reenacted in the lives of these swines as they run down the hill and into the lake. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are witnessing this. How scary would this be? I can see them looking from Jesus to the man, to the water, taking a step back, right? Eventually they turn and they run back into town and they're relaying this unbelievable story. And like any good story, the people come. They want to see for themselves. And so people flock to the shores, looking and seeking. And when they get there, they see this man, this man that they've known, this man that they have chained to the tombs time and time again sitting calm and at peace at the feet of Jesus, in his right mind, clothed and clean. In place of his screams, just the quiet beating of the shore up against the rocks. And they are afraid. They're scared. How odd. Most people, when they encounter Jesus, when they encounter something so great, go back through the scripture, they are like amazed, right? They're in awe, but these people are afraid. And they look at him and they say, hey, what's your name? Jesus, you ain't welcome. You need to, hello, we need you to go. You ain't welcome here. Has our fear ever caused us to rescind an invitation for God to be active in our life on a regular basis? Jesus turns and walks back towards his boat. But this man who has been healed cannot believe that Jesus is leaving this quick. Whoa, 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 hold on, y'all don't know. Y'all don't know what this man did for me. No, 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 Jesus, Jesus, hey, hey, let me go with you, I wanna go with you. Now Jesus had granted the request of the demons to enter the swine, he had granted the request of these people to leave and now he refuses the request of his newest disciple. He says, no, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't go with me. I need you to go back into that city and I need you to tell all your friends, my friends. <laughs> tell all your friends what I have done for you. But Jesus, I really, really just wanna go with you. Jesus gets in his boat. And he leaves. And this man is left as a lone disciple. He goes in and he does just that. He tells his story because you can't have something like that happen to you. You can't be that far deep in pain and be released from it and not tell somebody. And it says that he tells his story. And finally, the people were amazed. You all, this is a strange account. I mean, by all standards. It's just a strange account, and yet I am constantly drawn to it. Can't tell you how many times I preach this passage from different ways and angles. I am drawn to it. But I believe here today for us, we can really, really look at the character of Jesus from a different perspective. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at two more um, traditional versions of the definition of radical. And we're going to look at 
what Jesus does in this passage. So the first is thoroughgoing or extreme, especially as in regards to change from accepted or traditional forms. Change from accepted or traditional forms. There was a study released in 2011 that said that most people would be willing to sacrifice one in order to save many. And the reason and the logic behind this is because, of course, the needs of many outweigh the needs of one. And in truth, our salvation, or salvation as we understand it, is hinged upon this principle. Jesus Christ, one person, fully human, fully design, divine, gives of himself for all, right, to be saved. So there is validity in this idea and this thought process. And yet, what makes this passage so incredibly radical, and particularly Jesus in this passage so radical, is that Jesus in this passage does the exact opposite. Jesus, who is with a crowd of people who want to be with Jesus, leaves this crowd, travels through a storm, in order to land at a place where not only is he not wanted, but he only saves one person, the most ostracized, oppressed, pain-filled person. He left all those people through a storm to save one in a place that did not welcome him. Y'all, this is strange and radical, right? It's a very radical thing for Jesus to do. I mean, this is a man who literally was tortured in every way possible, right? I'm not saying he didn't deserve to be saved. All I'm saying is that there were a whole lot of people on that other shore. And it got me to thinking, and I started to think, you know, like, what is it? Where in our lives do we struggle so much that we have fear that perhaps it might consume us? And where in our lives where we say, oh, I'm struggling with this, but you know what? I'm just one person. I'm too insignificant for any one person or God to come and do any particular thing for me. Well, I once watched a video about the power of one. Some of y'all may have seen it, right? That one degree can mean the difference in whether or not water boils, and water boiling can mean the difference between whether or not harmful bacteria dies on something, yeah? One second can mean the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal. And anybody who's in the Olympics knows that that means there's a lot of money difference in those two things, right? One inch can mean the difference between life or death and a gunshot when one matters. One is significant. And so in this moment, Jesus was saying that even though the world is calibrated in such a way that yes, it looks like the needs of many outweigh the needs of one. Jesus was saying, uh-uh, I need you to understand I also care about that one. Jesus was also saying, I will come for you, that one. I will come for you, that one. Despite what all the world is doing, I will come for one. And so, yes, in this way, Jesus was extremely radical. But there's another definition of radical that I think actually gets us even deeper to where we are today, which is favoring drastic political, economic, 
or social reforms. So not only does Jesus leave the crowds to travel through the storm to save one where he is not wanted, but then after he saves that one, this man who has by all accounts been dehumanized by people who did not understand or know anything about his condition, he makes that man stay where he was oppressed. And I'm sorry, but I, I, I think that's pretty radical. Even the children of Egypt get to leave the land of their oppression. They don't have to stay in the land where they were enslaved. But here Jesus says, no, you got to stay. That is odd and strange and radical. I remember reading a biography about a man, a young Indian man who grew up under the dictates of Indian society and he was a middle class boy, pretty average, not very tall, didn't do anything all that well, but was expected to follow in his father's footsteps in leadership and administration and so he was sent to London at age 19 to go to law school. He finishes law school, he goes back to India again, cannot meet the standards that his family wants to meet. He finally gets a job working as a civil rights lawyer in South Africa. And when he first gets there, the first week, he boards the public transportation in South Africa and he sits in the seat that he chooses, which is what he would have been allowed to do in India. He was still very much in his privilege because he was fairly high up on the caste system in India. He sits down, but a European passenger has a problem with him sitting there and he is asked to leave. When he refuses to leave, he is thrown off the bus. And something in him changes. Something in that experience in him changes. And slowly, though he grew up Hindu, he begins to study other religions. He studies Islam and he studies Christianity. He studies the ways of Jesus. And then he begins to look at civil rights movements. And he is very impressed with Russia at the time that had a very nonviolent movement happening. And he begins to decide that he is going to form and shape his children differently. He homeschools his children. He starts to cast off Western thought patterns and ways. He begins to ignore the caste system, doing domestic chores that people in his home country where he would be in caste would never be found doing. He presses against the system because of this experience that he has. Finally, he makes his way back to India. And because he is so incredibly changed, he inspires so many others to walk with him against not only India's system of oppression, but the British government system of oppression that was happening at the time. He presses with an entire group of people and they experience economic, political, and social reform in India. And Gandhi, to this day, is still very much inspiring change in folk despite his death. So for those of you who were here last week, we talked about light and how it is easy to hide one light, but not easy to hide many lights. And the same concept is true here. It may mean, boiling water may mean the difference between one degree, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the other 31 degrees. 
One does matter, but you must, in order to have the power necessary to invoke change, you must have more. One can influence, but many create change. And so my question becomes, could that have been what Jesus was doing here and we just missed it? Could Jesus have been creating political, economic, and social change in Gerasenes by leaving this man here? Well, the same laws that allowed that man to be chained to that tomb are the same laws that, ha that would have to allow him to re-enter society, right? And let's be very clear, this man was a product of his environment, okay? Most of the pain that we experience, a lot of it, is not due to something that we've done. Some of it may be, but a lot of it isn't, right? Sometimes it is environmental, sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's sociological, sometimes it's heretical. But either way, this man was a product of his environment. And Jesus treated this man the same way he treated everybody else who needed healing. If you go back and look in scripture, Jesus treats people who are quote unquote demon possessed the same way he treats people who are blind. And the same people who are lame, they simply need healing, period. But because this man had an illness that manifested in his behavior, society had chained him to a tomb. The laws of that society allowed him to be chained. A living, breathing man chained to the tombs of the dead. But those same laws that did not hinder people from chaining him to that tomb are the same laws that had to let him back in. The same laws that said that you are not human had to now allow him to re-enter society and demand that who we said was not human actually is. Political reform by virtue of walking and living and breathing a different reality, this man was challenging the laws that allowed him to be oppressed. But then we see that the swine that Jesus allowed the demons to go into was mostly a livelihood for this community and this neighborhood. So it's how they made their money. And so when they see that their swine are dead and they are angry, right, which I can understand a little bit, but they're angry to the point where they cannot even acknowledge that their brother has been healed. It says very clearly that this was a people who were placing profit over people. This was a people who would not see the human life before them for the sake of money. Economical reform, right in that moment, Jesus was saying, mm-mm. I need you to get this right. But then Jesus makes this man interact with people in this city. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who had seen him at his worst are now seeing him at his best. They are interacting with him. They are listening to his story. How is that not social reform? That who we thought you were, you really aren't now that we actually get to talk to you and spend time with you and see you. And here's the crux of this thing, y'all. The crux of this thing 
is that I don't know if people can fully appreciate change unless they were able to see where we've come from. Like, I can really appreciate the butterfly because I've seen the caterpillar. Not that I don't like caterpillars, they're furry and cute, but they don't fly. Sometimes we experience radical change personally, and our first indication, our first desire is to what? Leave. I just want to run, because these people haven't changed. I changed, but they ain't changed, right? But what if your greatest impact will happen in the very space where people saw you one way and now can acknowledge that you are another? Oh, somebody turning in their seat right now, right? Doggone it, I wanted to leave. That radical means just that. It means way over the top. It means blow your mind. I cannot conceive of it, but I've got to acknowledge it because it's standing before me. What is it? Radical makes people inquisitive. Radical makes people uncomfortable. Radical frees people. What if God is calling us to be radical where we are? Why? Because in order for us to be free, that means that others who are experiencing the same things as we are can see that they too can be free. And even more difficult, I would argue that those who have been oppressed and are made to live in the land of their oppression not only have the capacity to lead others to freedom who are experiencing what they are experiencing, but they also have the capacity to lead others to freedom who have also often oppressed. This man was not sent there just to free other people who were struggling like him. He had to stay among people who had literally chained him to that tomb. And now when we return to that passage of scripture where Jesus sounded real crazy but was probably just being radical again, when Jesus said to this man, go to your friends. What you mean, Jesus? I got friends? Did they come, like, I broke those chains myself. Nobody let me out, right? What if Jesus was alluding to not just the people who knew him before he was filled with so much pain, not just his family. What if Jesus was alluding to the people in a society who did not agree with how he was being treated but simply did not know how to help free him? What if he was speaking about the people who were on the cusp? I sympathize and I empathize, but I don't know what to do. These were the friends. These were the people who says, yes, I'm stuck in this cycle, but what do I do? Do I lose my job? Do I give up my kids? What do I do? And Jesus was saying to him, go find your friends. Go find the people who thought it was wrong for you to be locked up in the first place. Go find the people who know that they want society to change. Go find the people who are ready to learn and do what? Build this thing. Go find them because you know what? You got the pathway inside you. You know what it's called? The gospel. 
Jesus was inherently radical. He didn't pick and choose. We can look at any passage of scripture, I promise you, I can pull it out. This was a part of who he was. He wasn't just healing individual lives. He was literally breaking apart, ripping apart oppressive systems and bringing what? A new kingdom order, God's kingdom. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities in high places. Jesus was radical. And the last time I checked, we were called to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise that though there are times when we are tired in our minds and in our bodies and in our souls, there are times when it seems like so much is happening at once. There are times when we feel like we are stuck. There are even seasons that seem to go on for an eternity. There are times when we feel like there's no way out. God, that in moments like this, though you may not take us out of the darkness, you have Trusted, we can trust that you have agreed to meet us in the darkness and walk us up to the point of light. And so, God, as we are walking in the darkness, remind us that we are not in that place by ourselves, that there is a community around us, that you are there with us, that you, Almighty God, are uncovering the light within us, that once again the spaces around us might be illuminated. God, for all the people and the things that we pray for, teach us and give us what we need to have the courage to fight and to advocate for the freedom of all people. God, we advocate for the freedom of both the oppressed, which you always lean towards as a priority, but also as the oppressor because they too are created in your image. And in truth, almighty God, we can't be free unless we're all free. So give us what we need, God, both in our individual lives on a day-to-day basis, but also as a church and as your body. God, that we are inherently your body, a body that is radical, a body that is life-changing, a body that will shake up the world for the sake of freedom. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.